So the book of Exodus, a little bit of background, a little bit more of history class type of feel. Uh, The book of Exodus, it's basically the sequel to the book of Genesis. We've been going through the book of Genesis, and right where Genesis chapter 50 ends, Exodus chapter 1 sort of begins. And Exodus, it's a book of fulfilled promises. A book of fulfilled promise. The only thing better than being given a promise is actually seeing that promise fulfilled. In Hebrew, the title for the book of Exodus is literally, and these are the names. So there wasn't too much creativity in the Hebrew for the name of it. If you look at verse 1, now these are the names. That's literally the title of the book of Exodus. We know that Moses is the author. I don't know why or how some scholars argue, but Moses is the author. He's the author of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. In John chapter 5, verse 46 and 47, Jesus, who has a pretty good feel of the scriptures, he has Moses as the one who wrote it. Verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my word? So Jesus himself says, hey, Moses wrote about me. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 4, it tells us, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning, and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. So again, Moses, he's the author of the first five books of the Bible, Probably sometime after the Hebrew people are out of Egypt and before Moses passes away, obviously, uh, he writes down here the first five books of the Bible. For us in the Greek, the meaning of the title or the word Exodus, it means departure. A departure or the way out. And what we're going to see is a group of people, God's chosen people, God's chosen family, They were in the midst of slavery. And through the book of Exodus, we'll see their freedom and we'll see their departure, their way out of the situation. And their redemption is found by blood and by power. That's how the Hebrew people are freed. It's by blood and by power. The blood of an innocent lamb and the power of God. And family, the same is true for us today. Our freedom Our redemption, our departure from this fallen world can only be found through the blood of Jesus and the power of his resurrection. That's the only way we find freedom. That's the only way we find redemption. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. For those of you who like outlines, a quick outline here for the book of Exodus, you students of the Bible. It's broken up into three parts. This is the simplest outline, which I think simplicity is key when you study things. Chapters 1 through 13, it's Israel in Egypt. It's the nation of Israel while they're in Egypt, chapters 1 through 13. Chapters 14 through 18, it's Israel en route to Sinai. You have the Israelites and they're on their way out to Sinai, chapters 14 through 18. And finally, chapters 19 through 40, We'll see the Israelites there at Sinai where the Lord speaks to them so much and prepares them for the life to come for them, for their children, and for their children's children. So 1 through 13, Israel in Egypt. 14 through 18, Israel in route to the Sinai. And 19 through 40, Israel at Sinai. And being a book of fulfilled promises, there are four main promises that we're going to see fulfilled through the book of Exodus. If you remember Abram, Abraham, he was given many promises from the Lord, which basically seemed impossible. He was given the promise. We're going to see the first one is the number of descendants. In Genesis 15 through 16, you could turn there if you want. You don't have to. In Genesis 15, verse 5 through 6, it tells us, Then he brought him outside, and he said, Look now towards heaven, And count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in God and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So again, Abram, before he has any children, God says, hey, come out here. Can you count how many stars are out there? 
You're going to have that many descendants later on when I'm done with you, right? And again, he's looking around. Lord, I'm 80 years old and I got no kids. How are you going to do this? The second promise that's fulfilled, which is not a great one, it's suffering for 400 years, right? Talk about a bummer of a promise. Suffering for 400 years. There in Genesis 15, same chapter in verse 13, he tells Abram, he gave him the good news first, and then he gives him the bad news. He says, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. So again, not the greatest of promises to get, not the greatest of promises to have fulfilled. In Genesis 15, now verse 14, a better promise, it's coming out with many possessions. So the Lord said, hey, your descendants, they're going to be abused, they're going to be in slavery. But hey, when they come out, they're going to come out with many possessions. Verse 14, Genesis chapter 15, it says, And also, the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So again, that's a better promise there. In Genesis 50, 24 through 26, Joseph, he gives them the same promise. He says, hey, don't bury me here. Don't put my bones in some huge Egyptian tomb or in a pyramid. Put my bones, leave them outside because the Lord will take us, our family, out from Egypt. And in Hebrews 11, verse 22, it tells us, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. The fourth and final promise that we'll see fulfilled within the book of Exodus, it's a covenant renewed with a nation. The covenant renewed with a nation. We know that the Lord had a covenant with Abraham. He had a covenant with Isaac, right? He had a covenant with his sons. But here we're going to see the Lord make a covenant between him and the whole nation of Israel. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, the Lord says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So again, Exodus is basically just a part two. There's even more, right? This time it's real, right? Whatever you want to put to the sequel to the book of Genesis. But hey, let's dive in. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read verse 1 through 7. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. You see, it's pretty incredible because the children of Israel really began in a city of Haran where the Lord blessed five people, Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Zilpha, and Bilhah. So in one city, the Lord blesses five people, and a couple of years later, now they're up to 70 people. And then a few hundred years later after that, many scholars put the number at around 2 million people. So again, they're doubling at a rapid pace. In Genesis 47, verse 27, before Jacob passes away, the Lord gives us the same truth here. In Genesis 47, verse 27, it says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. I don't know if you ever look at the Scripture and ask the Lord's questions, right? You ever look at scripture and say, Lord, I think I could have figured this out better than you, right? For honest, that's what we're saying. But looking at it, at least I ask myself, Lord, why didn't you take them to Canaan and just allow them to multiply there? It would have saved them 40 years in the desert. It would have saved them from the earth being opened up and swallowing some sinners whole. You wouldn't have had to do the 10 plagues or all this madness. You wouldn't have to do, Lord, why did you multiply them there in Egypt? Why couldn't you have done it there in Canaan in the promised land? 
And if we're honest, as we look through Scripture, as we look through the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, the Hebrew people sort of have a problem with the pagan people around them, right? Every time there's pagan women around them, what do they usually do? They get married and they bring them into the family. When there's pagan gods around them, even though God just allowed them to defeat this pagan nation and these pagan gods, what are the people of Israel prone to? Bringing those pagan gods and idols right into their hearts and in their lives. You see, what the Lord allowed through Egypt and the sin of Egypt was to provide a great place of protection for the people of Israel where the nation of Egypt would want nothing to do with them. They wouldn't be tempted to intermarry with them. They wouldn't be as tempted to bring the pagan gods into their families and into their folds because the Egyptian people had a disgust towards the Hebrew people, which would protect them, again, from intermarrying and serving their gods. In Genesis 43, verse 32, we could read that, so you can see I'm not just making it up. Uh, Genesis 43, verse 32 It tells us here, Joseph, he's about to meet with his brothers. He's about to break bread and eat with them. And there in verse 32, it tells us, So they set him a place by himself, and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians." So again, the Egyptians wanted nothing to do with the Hebrews. They looked down at them. They stuck their noses down at them. So this provided a safe haven for the Israelites to grow and multiply and not intermarry with the pagans around them. We also know that Joseph would warn his brothers, hey, don't tell them that you're shepherds because they hate shepherds around here. And what do they do? They mess up right away, right? But that's why they're put in the land of Goshen, far away from the main cities of Israel. So again, they can grow up there and multiply and be pure and holy before the Lord. Verse 8, here we get a turning point within our story, our narrative. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. We know that Joseph, he was a national hero. Not only did he save the nation of Egypt from this severe, severe famine through his wisdom, through his ability that God gave him to know the dream of Pharaoh, but then the wisdom to save the food, to put it in the storehouses, and to deal correctly with the Egyptian people. But here a new king arises. If you're super into Egyptian pharaohs and Egyptian history, I encourage you to listen to the C.C. Filiap and Joe Foe. She goes through like 40 minutes just talking about the pharaohs and who fought who and this pharaoh and that pharaoh and the third pharaoh. Uh, so if that's your thing, you can listen to him. But basically, up until this point, the nation of Egypt was ruled by different shepherd kings. Different shepherd kings and the nation wasn't all in unison. It was in two separate kingdoms. What happened is one leader came, he defeated both of them, and now he became the true king and pharaoh of Egypt, and now he would even go on to despise the people of Israel because Joseph hooked them up. Joseph gave them the land of Goshen. Pharaoh loved them. Pharaoh took care of them. Pharaoh said, hey, you guys can be in charge of the king's cattle. You don't have to pay for your land, and Pharaoh took care of them. So now in verse 9, he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. So this is the first evil plan by this king to weaken this great people group that's multiplying before their eyes and before their nation. He set taskmasters over them to afflict them and cause them to build cities for the nation, for the government of Egypt. But verse 12, again, how the Lord works. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Family, this is a truth for God's chosen people from Genesis to Revelation to us today. 
The way that our lives should be lived is the more affliction we are going under, the more we should be growing and multiplying with the Lord. They tried to afflict them. They tried to enslave them, but they ended up multiplying more and more. Within the book of Acts, right, you have the governing authorities and you had the religious authorities and they tried to kill the disciples. They tried to squash out the church. And what ended up happening? The church exploded. It says the blood of the martyrs, that was the fertile ground for the church to grow and to explode. Now for fear of being killed, they would go around to different cities still sharing the gospel. So family, are you in a season where you feel afflicted? You think everything's against you? Nothing's going right? I challenge you, don't throw in the towel. The Lord is growing you. The Lord is allowing you to press into Him. And now the opposite is true and very scary for us. In seasons where there's great comfort, seasons where there's a lot of relaxation, seasons where it's just vacation and buffets and hanging out all the time, what ends up happening to us? We get weak. We get lazy, right? When do we grow the most with the Lord? Man, I was on a vacation for a month in Bora Bora, and man, I've never grown more with the Lord, right? I don't think anyone's ever say that. What do we do? We end up taking more naps. We go fishing. We go to the beach. We read books. I don't know if you grow exponentially there, but when do people grow exponentially? Man, my son or daughter was sick, and I was just pressing into the Lord. I just lost my job. I lost my business, and Lord, I've been crying out to you. My family member is sick in the hospital, and now we're praying more than ever, and we're digging into God's word more than ever. Again, remember Hebrews 12, that in seasons of affliction, seasons of God's discipline, the Lord is really growing us. He's growing us more than ever. So, again, be careful. If you're in a season where everything seems too easy, everything seems too calm, everything seems too relaxed, look at your walk with the Lord and see if it's truly growing and multiplying, or you've totally forgotten about the Lord. And within the blessings and the richness, you've left Him. You've left your first love. So again, the same should be said of us. The more affliction that goes in our lives, the more and more we should grow and multiply. Verse 13, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So now not only do they have taskmasters, but now they made the jobs even more difficult. They made the jobs even harder saying, okay, this is going to squash them. This is going to kill their morale. This will keep them from having as many kids. They'll be tired. They'll be exhausted. And then that way they won't be able to overtake us. That's the second evil plan. Verse 15 through 16, here we get the third evil plan of the king of Egypt. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the names of one was Sephira and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter... Then she shall live. This is the third evil plan of the king of Egypt. Important thing for us to note, family. Even from ancient times till today, within history, when a group of people want to destroy a nation, they destroy the men first. They destroy the masculinity within the nation. Not the sin of men, not the disgustingness of men, but whenever you snuff out the men, the masculinity, that protector, that priest, that provider, when you kill that first, it's much easier to take over a nation. And you see that within this country of Egypt with the Hebrews, and you see that till today. In every nation that's overthrown, you'll see a common theme there. When the king overtakes the Hebrew people, what does he do? He takes the king's men, he castrates all of them, and now he brings them into slavery, into Babylon. It's a common thing for them. So here the king, he's trying to destroy the nation of Israel. He's going to kill all the men. He's going to keep the girls alive so they could have more servants, more wives, more women. And he gives a direct order to these two midwives who are probably the leaders of the midwives of the Hebrew people. The Hebrew women, they would give birth on two birth stools. They wouldn't be on a bed. 
And now we have all sorts of ways to give birth, right? At home, at the hospital, in a half home, half hospital, right? In a pool, out of the pool. I don't know if they have a slide yet. That'd be pretty cool. But there's all sorts of ways to give birth. Here, the way they would give birth is they would have one foot on one rock and the other foot on another rock. They would be standing up. They'd be giving birth standing up. And the instruction here for the midwives was as you catch that little baby, if it's a boy, you need to put it to death right away. If it's a girl, you can let it live. And family, there's a common theme throughout the Bible where the Lord loves to protect life. All over scripture, right? We read it within Genesis. We saw it with Joseph, the idea of protecting life. That is something that the Lord gives us. And now in our day, we have lots of science. We have lots of sophistication. Reading this, I think all of our stomachs sort of turned there. You're going to have the baby born and then kill it right away even though it's done nothing wrong. Just took its first breath and depending on its gender, you're going to kill it right away. And it can seem disgusting to us. Later on, he's going to up the ante and he's going to say, throw them into the river, right? In India, we hear the horror stories of people that don't want their children and they put them in the field and they stuff their nose and mouths filled with rice. And we think, man, what kind of sin, what kind of atrocities? But yet within our nation, with abortion, all it is is just a ton of science behind it. It's still a little baby. It's still a boy. It's still a girl. It's still a human being made in the image of God. We still can find out the gender. There's still a heartbeat. There's still a life there. And with the science and sophistication we have, it has dumbed us down to this great evil. Family, I challenge you, pray that the Lord would help you to be biblical within these truths, that our lives would be about protecting life, all life, right? Usually when a nation's given into abortion, the next thing is euthanasia, right? Assisted suicide. Man, they're old, they're hurting, just put them down already. We shouldn't have any of this within our nation. So again, for us as believers to pray, if I could go as far as to say, man, pray and vote for whoever is going to be the best candidate to protect life here. Verse 17, we see the midwives, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. We see here these two midwives. They're not part of the chosen people of God. They're not Hebrews. They're not Israelites. The Lord didn't speak to them in a dream. But yet they feared God more than Pharaoh, more than the most powerful man and the richest man in the entire world, and yet they feared God over man. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. This is common scriptures, common balance that many churches, many believers are wrestling over, and it's something we should pray about and consider. Lord, at what point am I to disobey the government? Lord, at what time am I supposed to have civil disobedience within my nation, within my kingdom, within the government? Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Here the Lord gives us what's the point of government. Why did the Lord allow government? Why does the Lord allow kings? Why does the Lord allow these things? Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it tells us, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So again, 
God's word tells us that the Lord himself has put these people, has put this authority in its place for verse 3 to not be a terror to good works, but to evil works. That when it's being done God's way, when we're doing what's good, we won't be in fear. But if we're doing what's evil, then we will be afraid. This is God's prescription for government. The problem with government, family, is that sooner or later, the love of money corrupts every government. Has any government started and still standing until today, right? Roman, the Grecians, right? Any government still standing, they all get corrupt sooner or later. So we must pray, Lord, what would you have us to do? In Acts chapter 4, the book right next door, Acts chapter 4, to the left in your Bibles, here we're given a great example of believers, of Jesus' followers, of men who we're going to see in heaven, and they decided to not obey their governing authority. Acts chapter 4, it tells us, verse 17, this is the authority speaking. It says, But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. You see, family, throughout our own scripture, throughout our own forefathers, our brothers and sisters that have come before us, there are times where being obedient to God means we're going to have to be disobedient to our authorities, whether it's your boss, sometimes your parents, sometimes the government, and we need to pray. I challenge you to seek the Lord now and saying, Lord, what's that line for me and for my family? Don't wait till you get there to then decide, is the line here, is the line there, the line here, there, where is it? No, pray and decide ahead of time. At what point do I say, I must serve God rather than man? Because again, every nation has its time period before they're given over to their own lusts and desires. We go back to Exodus chapter 2, and we see how the Lord honors these two women, honors these two midwives. They were probably the chief midwives that took care of all the other ones and gave them their orders in Exodus chapter 2, verse 20. It tells us, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Again, this is the key point for us when we're in those moments where, again, hopefully your heart should be racing. You should be wondering. You should be wrestling with the Lord. The reason why we do it is not for our own pride it's not because we want this and we're being given that. No, it's because we are fearing God. And because we respect God more than men, this is why we're making this decision. And this was the heart behind what these midwives did. The Lord honored them. The Lord took care of them. The Lord blessed them there. Scholars believe that midwives in this age, in this ancient age, most of them weren't able to have children of their own. And that's why they would begin being midwives, so they could take care of the woman as she's giving birth and so that they can take care of these babies as they're growing up. So what does the Lord do? How does the Lord reward them? In verse 21, it's not that he gave them houses or mansions or vacation homes. It's that the Lord provided them with children. The Lord provided them with families of their own. The Lord provided households for them. Again, family, the Lord, if you're fearing him and that's the drive, that's the fuel behind your decisions, he's going to provide for you. So verse 22, so Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Again, a great evil. We see this here. We see this when Jesus is born. It's all given by the government, all given by government edicts. We have to be careful, family. 
and the things we align with, the people we align with. God, I really pray about that. And this is the fourth evil plan here by this corrupt king of Egypt. And this is a tough season to be a Hebrew, tough season to be an Israelite. And have you ever thought to yourself, I'm not having a baby in this world? Culture's too crazy, climate's too crazy, it's too insane, they're too expensive, right? That's a different conversation. But, right, we may say it's too evil out there. Anybody thought that before? I'm not having the kids, it's too crazy right now. Only one of us, two of us, right? A couple of us, right? Check out the culture and the world that Moses is about to be born into. At best, he's born into slavery. That's best case scenario. If you're an Israelite and you're praying, saying, hey, let's get married. Hey, let's have kids in a family. At best, you're bringing a kid to be raised up in slavery by Egypt. At worst, you're having a baby boy that is going to be thrown into the Nile River. And again, who in their right mind says, let's start a family, right? <laughs> let's have kids. It's a great time, great season to have kids. But family, kids and family, it's a blessing from the Lord. And it's really one of the most important things to God. That's why he's created things so specifically in the order of who goes where and where in the family. It's because he cherishes it and he loves it. Many times we want change within our nation. We want change within our world. Lord, the two-party system, it's evil, corrupt. Lord, would you fix that? We need three parties. We need this. We need that, right? But one of the easiest ways to begin influencing the world around us is to get married to a godly person and raise up kids and have more kids. Is to make disciples. And once you're married, you can literally make disciples, right? That's the incredible thing. And if you can't make them, hey, you can adopt them. And now you can raise these sons and daughters like we just had with the baby dedication in the things of God. Right? We see all the insanity in the news, all the craziness. No believer should be anywhere near any of those things, right? None of you should be on the news with what's going on on the news, right? Because we're believers. Because we don't act that way. We don't live that way because we follow God and we follow God's word. So one of the easiest ways to influence the world around us is to have kids and raise them in the things of God. Right? That's what we must do is raise them in the things of the Lord. It was interesting. Me and Amanda always, not always, we began realizing all the parents that had two kids or less, we're not here to fight, no battles. All the parents that had one or two kids would tell you, hey, don't have more than two kids. It's too crazy. It's too insane. But all the parents that had like three kids, four kids, five kids, six kids, seven kids, eight kids, ten kids, like have more, have more, have more, Right? So it's interesting how that goes. But again, that's one of the biggest blessings that God has within the Bible. Is to be able to sit down at dinner and have your family around you loving the Lord and following the Lord. So hey, you're married. Go out. Make disciples. Uh, Exodus, <laughs> Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. It tells us, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. Exodus chapter 6 verse 20. Gives us the name of these two individuals. Amram is Moses' father and Jochebed is Moses' mother. And it tells us, so the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him and daubed it with asphalt and pitch and put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Again, imagine getting married in this climate, having a baby in this climate. You can't tell if it's a boy or a girl yet. So again, imagine the stress that moms are already in, the emotions going up and down. Now imagine not knowing if what's inside of you is going to be allowed to live or not. The added stress, the added pain, the added agony. Now they give birth to a boy. It's a son. They take care of him. She sees that he's beautiful, right? And we may think, duh, which parent looks at their kid and says, eh, you're not cute, man. <laughs> do they make, uh, do they knit like baby ski mask? You'd be a great candidate for a baby ski mask, right? Can't fail, right? No, no parent ever looks at their baby and thinks of that, right? But what God's word tells us is that they saw something special within Moses. They saw that the Lord had plans 
and purposes for Moses. That's not his birth name. We don't know his birth name. We'll find out in heaven. But again, which parent doesn't look at their kid and sees, man, endless possibilities. Lord, what are you going to do with them? I hope no parent here you give birth and say, ah, you're going to be super mediocre, man. I can't wait till you grow up. You're just going to be super average. It's going to be awesome. I don't think any parent looks at their kid and thinks that. But man, the power within a baby, it's amazing. The plans, the purposes, the hopes and dreams. So she hides him for three months. We don't know if Moses was wearing all pink for three months or what was going on and what was going on there. But after she couldn't hide him any longer, she builds a little ark. She covers it just like the ark of Noah. It's the same word here. And now she covers it in the inside and outside so it's waterproof. And she lays it in the reeds and she pushes it off. Can you imagine the emotion that is going on in this family? Lord, what is going to happen here? Lord, I did my best. I hit him for three months. But Lord, he's got an older brother. He's got an older sister. If we're caught, what if they kill the whole family? Lord, what are we going to do here? So, Lord, I'm going to do my best, but God, it's up to you what you are going to do with this little baby boy. And that's a great picture for us in parenting. We shouldn't be holding on to our kids so tightly that we are raising them up in just us. And what we think and what we believe, the Lord and his word needs to come first. We shouldn't just be putting them in t-ball because we never got to be in t-ball when we were growing up, right? I had dreams of being in ballet and I never got to realize them, so I'm going to force you to do this. That's not the way we should raise our kids. But it's releasing them to the things of the Lord and, again, allowing the Lord to have his will being done in our kids. So, again, she releases this little boat, three-month baby boy, and his sister. She's pretty wise. She's a smart girl. She stands afar off waiting, hiding in the weeds, hiding in the reeds to see what's done to him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh, she came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. In Hebrew traditions, they say an angel, right before she opened the basket, an angel pinched Moses, right? So he would start crying, have a little tear as she opened the basket, right? Ay, que lindo, right? That's what she's thinking. She sees the baby. She has compassion on him. And said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women? That she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And the child grew And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. Our God is so awesome, so cool. Pharaoh trying to destroy these people, trying to destroy this nation. Little did he know the hero, the savior of the Hebrew people, he was paying to feed. He was paying to take care of. He was making his bed. He was paying his allowance. He was paying for his education. Again, the power of our God, that even when the enemy tries to do its utmost evil, the Lord is able to use it for good. But now imagine these parents. You're given the blessing. There's a great blessing here. She's getting paid to nurse and take care of the kid. That's a great idea within government. Give blessings to new parents, to new moms, to new dads, right? That's a great place to put a stipend or a government blessing, but that's a different conversation. Uh, But here... She has three years with Moses. Three years is usually when they would wean off the baby and then allow him to go. What in the world did she do with her time with Moses? Right, parents, imagine if you only had three years with your kids. What would you do? Would you do anything different, right? From here on out, you only have three years with them. What are you going to teach them? What are you going to speak to them? And it's not only three years and they go off to... The white picket fence in the woods and raise a family. No, it's three years and then they go into Egypt. They go into a sinful place. They go into a pagan place where they have all the access to whatever they want in life. What are you going to do with those three years? And again, Moses, he was an amazing kid, amazing man. We turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. We could turn there and hear the author of Hebrews gives us 
a view, a perspective here, another historical account of Moses and his life, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, it tells us, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. I think that's probably the first thing there for us as parents. Who are you most afraid of in raising your kids? Is it the government? Is it the world around us? Is it the peer pressure? Is it the other parents? Is it your parents? Or is your chief fear and concern is, Lord, am I doing right by you? Lord, am I truly raising them according to your standards? Lord, am I truly raising them according to your word? Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Again, an amazing man, Moses, but what did his mom do in those three years? You see these videos, they're pretty awesome, right? You have a little kid and they give him a marshmallow. And they say, hey, if you don't eat this marshmallow for 10 minutes, I'm going to give you another marshmallow. And they just walk out of the room. They have the cameras there. And you see the battle beginning, right? See the kids, they're twitching. They're trying to fight it, right? They're staring at it, trying to move the marshmallow. Some of them just turn away like, nah, you're not there. I'm not looking at the marshmallow. Some eat it right away. But what did Moses' mom teach him? Again, he's given not just what's out in the world. He's given the top of the top. It's not like the White House today is the most powerful home, right, in the world. But it's not the richest home in the world. No. Egypt, the palace in Egypt, it would have been the most powerful, the most influential, and the richest home in all the world. And yet Moses pulled out the calculator and he said, you know what? It's better for me to suffer affliction and slavery with God's people than to enjoy the very best that this world has to offer. Again, and that should be us. Teenagers here, don't make excuses. The world is like this. Basically, if you're under 40, you can't make excuses, right? The world is like this. This is going on. I can't help but give in. This is something that's running rampant in our world. I can't help but give in. Yes, you can. Moses was able to, through the power of God, through what his mom had taught him, through the work that Jesus had done in his life. We are of no excuse. Moses had a lot better. I don't know how many of you guys are tempted with Bill Gates inviting you to hang out and spending all the money you want on whatever you want. Again, our best? Pretty junky, right? It's not that great. And yet so often we're saying, Lord, I'd rather be in this sin. I know it's going to be pleasurable for a moment, but Lord, I'd rather be in this sin than be right with you. May we be like Moses Saying, you know, I'd rather be in slavery with God's people than enjoy the very best that this world has to offer. But again, what did Moses' mom teach him? Parents, what are we teaching our kids? What do they know the most about? Are we reading the word of God to them? Even before they're three years old, right? That's convicting for me. How much am I going through God's word? How often am I telling my kids that God loves them, that Jesus loves them, that, hey, Jesus loves you more than daddy or mommy? God loves you more than anybody else in this world, right? How often are we putting those truths in the foundation of our kids' lives? Hey, honey, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, right? What are we teaching them? Listening to one of the teachings, and it's so true, the the nursery rhymes and the lullabies from this world, they're pretty freaky, right? They're pretty weird, right? London bridges falling down, falling down. All right, honey, go to bed, right? Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. The cradle rocks, falls over, right? All right, go to bed, sweetie. It's pretty crazy, pretty weird, right? Or are they going to bed listening to, man, the truths of God's word, the worship of God's word, how the Lord loves them, has a plan for them, a purpose for them. There's so much anxiety, so much fear, so much depression in the world that we live in. Are we growing that within our kids? Are we giving them the truth 
and the medicine to fight that and to defeat that. We go back to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11, right? It tells us, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and he looked that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? We see here Moses, he's moved with compassion for his people. And now he says, you know what? I've been taught. I'm a military man. Josephus tells us that he was a general within the Egyptian army, that he had great conquests, great battles. He was taught in all the schools in Egypt. So you know what, Lord? I'm going to use what you've given me, and I'm going to take out this first guy. And I guess I got 20 million more guys to go, right? I don't know what his plan was. But one thing is for certain. If you have to look this way and that way before you do something, probably shouldn't do it, right? Probably a bad idea. Probably sin is about to transpire, take place. If you're on your phone and you got to go on the secret window, eh, probably shouldn't do that, right? Probably shouldn't go there. When it's 11 at night and you're at the red light and you look to the left, right? You look to the right. Probably not a good idea to do whatever you're about to do, right? Sin is about to transpire. Bad things are about to take place. And he thinks he's about to free them. He thinks he's doing his best. But now the next day when he speaks to the Hebrew men... Right away they say in verse 14, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7... We're given, again, a great insight into the life of Moses by a man named Stephen. He was just a waiter. He was just a busboy. He just served in the cafe at church. And yet he's able to give an incredible historical account of all the history of the Israelites. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds now when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brethren the children of israel and seeing one of them suffer wrong he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the egyptian for he supposed that his brethren would have understood that god would deliver them by his hand but they did not understand Again, Moses thought, man, they're going to be down with this. They're going to be on with this. I'm in line to be Pharaoh. I'm going to kill the Egyptian, and now we're going to start a civil war, and we're going to get it. They're going to get on my side. But right away, what do they do? Right away, they begin fighting him. Verse 26, the next day he appeared to two of them. They were fighting. He tried to reconcile them. Men, you are brethren. Why are you doing wrong to one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. We go turn back to Exodus chapter 2. This is a picture of doing things in our flesh. When we try to do things in our flesh, there are some good things that we may want and desire. But if they're not done in the spirit, if they're not done being filled with the spirit, bad things can happen. Right? We're talking about parenting a lot. When you're trying to work with your kid and teach them something or discipline them, it's good. That's important. But now when we do it in our flesh... Bad things happen. It happens in anger, sarcasm, cast them down, hit them with words we shouldn't hit them with. But when it's done in the spirit, you're truly able to address the problem, give a solution, and remind them of the love and care you have for them. And Moses, he tries to do it in his flesh. Again, he looks around, does what he has to do, kills the first guy, has to dig up the sand, right? Puts the guy in, buries him. He's tired. He's exhausted. He gets caught. He has to run for his life. 
That's when we do things in the flesh. But later on, he runs away. Verse 16, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to Raul, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So this was a common occurrence. These shepherds, we know that they were bad news, bad group of people during this time period. They took advantage of these ladies. They take the water. They make them wait. They would have to wait there all day before they can feed their flocks. Moses is there. Again, it shows us the power and might, the wisdom, knowledge of this man. But he saves them. He delivers them. This guy's talking to his daughters. He has seven daughters, verse 20. So he said to his daughters, and where is he, right? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Genga has seven daughters. He's looking to hook one of them up with uh, Moses, right? Then Moses was content to live with the man and he gave Zephorah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. And then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. So again, Moses, it almost seems like he's given up. He had these illusions of grandeur, right? Lord, you're calling me to be the savior of these people. He tries, and in his first act, the very people he's trying to save are attacking him. And it tells us he was content to live there in the wilderness, marrying Zephora, settling down, leaving all these plans and purposes that the Lord had for him. And it's so interesting. Moses, he spends 40 years learning the very best that Egypt had to offer. And he goes out into the wilderness, and it's 40 years of forgetting, right, everything that Egypt had to offer, being brought down to nothing. Acts, it told us that he was mighty in word and in deed. And yet when the Lord comes and speaks to him, he goes, Lord, I can't talk. I have a stuttering problem. I can't do this. I'm not capable of it. I'm not good enough, right? And how the Lord is able to work in Moses. But it takes a spirit of humility. It takes a spirit of humility. We need to be careful when we're at church and we think, oh, I could do this. I'm the best. Lord, you've given me a plan and purpose to do this. It has to have a spirit of humility for it to be done in the spirit and not in the flesh. And again, what is Moses able to do in the spirit he was able to kill one Egyptian soldier, right? And he gets caught. He has to run for his life. Sweating, has to kill the guy, wrestle him, kill him, dig the hole, bury him, cover the hole. Gets caught. But with the Lord and with the Spirit, he's able to destroy the entire army of Egypt. Just lifting up his hand, right? And putting it back down. And again, family, that's a picture for us. If you're tired in this life, if you're tired in this wrestling, in this battle with sin and the flesh and the spirit, and Lord, none of this makes sense, perhaps you're going about it in your flesh. Perhaps you haven't humbled yourself in the sight of the Lord, that he would raise you up, that he would strengthen you, that you would be able to, like Moses, put down an entire army by just being obedient to God and to his word.